0: Hey, everybody! Welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week, I sit down with writer, director, and dragon slaying princess Erin Essenmacher to talk about courage, growth, and finding light in the dark. Enjoy! makes me feel like i'm on home improvement as mr wilson it's just like i you, can see that all you see is the eyes yeah um they're nice eyes oh uh, thank you <laughs> i was just thinking about how home improvement doesn't hold up <laughs> <laughs> no it doesn't. i've actually noticed that about a lot of media <clears throat> that i consumed when i was younger and even not that much younger like even four or five years ago
1: you mean in terms of like gender roles or
0: Gender roles, uh, you know, sort of social posturing and, mm-hmm. and sort of how, how people deal with mm-hmm. all of the various bits and pieces of, uh, of the social conversation, the conversation about social positions and, yeah, you know, and status, um, so many of those things, it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't hold up, which yeah. is unfortunate. Um,
1: or maybe not. Maybe it means we've evolved.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. You're absolutely right. I'm thinking about all of the many projects we've worked on together. <laughs> I've known our, you a long time. It's been a long time. I was I was significantly shorter. You were um, significantly shorter. And and I was gonna say more precocious, but that's not true. Yeah, I don't think so. No, I think you <laughs> was... held on to a, a fair bit of it. <laughs> but it's good. Yeah. Try and keep evolving. Yes. Um, which is, I think that evolving is all we can do. Oh yeah! Like the the whole forward movement is we we don't get to we don't get to keep doing unless we're growing and changing. I
1: was yeah I was explaining to my niece I was trying to explain to my niece what I do for work, mm-hmm. and I said the easiest way I could think to explain it to her she's seven is I'm a teacher but I teach adults, and she said you teach adults she's like adults don't need to go to school that's for kids and I said no you you are going to school your whole life you never stop learning mm-hmm. and she was like. That was like mind-blowing for her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see how that would be the case because I, I think my vague memories of Seven, the idea of being anything other than Seven were, was just <laughs> such a foreign concept. Like, what What do you mean I won't be this forever? That's just weird. Yeah. I can imagine being a tiger, but I can't imagine not being Seven. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Um, All the while I think so much of us spend a significant portion of our adult life trying to reconnect with the imagination that let us believe we could be a tiger and also be totally present in, you know, where you are and who you are right now.
1: Yeah. It's funny. I think I spent most of my childhood wanting to be big Mm -hmm. and not, you know, just I couldn't wait to grow up and be out in the world more and be able to do things and know how to do more things. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I think by the time I graduated from college and started working, especially after the first couple of years when I really found my, hit my stride and found my calling, I, um, I actually really embraced that more sort of like wondrous childlike energy. Mm-hmm. It's just a, I think that it just became like part of my work and part of my DNA. And it was, it's interesting. I almost feel like I did it in reverse. (laughs) Like I spent my childhood being like very serious and, you know, worrying about very big, like serious things like nuclear war and, you know, I don't know, economic injustice. And I still, you know, think about those Mm -hmm. things, but yeah, it's funny. I feel like I sort of more like lived my childhood as a young adult. I guess that's
0: a good thing (laughs) definitely not a bad thing because then it's it's so much it's definitely a lot readier to hand yeah even now I have a hard time remembering what it was like being a kid not having moments that were like that looking back now feel very adult for someone of that age like feeling like crushed about a thing or like all of the emotions we associate with you know emotional strain and, and sort of adult the adult experience those are the ones that I remember and experiencing wonder is something i had to basically relearn yeah which i think is is something a lot of people deal with like how to be exposed enough and vulnerable enough and and sort of present enough to take in how awesome stuff can be sometimes like in the literal sense of awe no totally
1: i think that's exactly right i think um you know i feel really lucky because i feel like my mom really embodied that and she Mm. raised us with that and uh she really um, taught me, you know, what that looks like in practice. And, Mm -hmm. and you know this, but, um, you know, she had multiple sclerosis. So she was disabled. And for probably the last 15 years of her life was confined to a wheelchair. And, you know, I think she had always been somebody who found joy and wonder in the everyday. Like she was awesome at doing that herself and doing that with us but to watch her do that as an adult when I knew that she was facing so many physical challenges and then kind of the emotional challenges that go with not being able to do the things that you used to be able to do and for her to still be able to find wonder and not still but almost in some ways I think the disability and the way that it manifested, or the MS and the way that we were talking about words before I try not to use the word disability, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's so ingrained. Um, but her MS and the way that it manifested in kind of an ironic way, it actually opened her up to a whole other level of wonder because, you know, she just stopped listening to all the outside noise. She had to spend a lot more time being still and being quiet and, you know, she was able to, in those moments, I think, reach a different level of sort of listening and understanding and really seeing the world in a different way. And, and so, I don't know, I think to, to be able to grow up with that model and that influence, um, I think absolutely shaped my ability to be able to embrace, embrace that as an adult.
0: So when I think of being open to that kind of experience, I think of being fearless, like not in the sense of not having fear but in the sense of like recognizing that you're afraid of things sometimes Mm -hmm. and then recognizing that you don't have to listen to it or that you can engage with it and then move on and especially in terms of a lot of the fear of like experiencing wonder on a social level like there's a lot of perceived judgment about being that open there's a lot of like there's a lot of internal awareness of like being that open Mm -hmm. exposes you 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 have to let yourself be exposed to experience things that way and that there is a risk how much do you think that that plays in both both for your mom and sort of just in general for people in the day-to-day
1: so i think first of all what i know to be true is that there is no growth without discomfort and so fear is discomfort being open in that way where you're vulnerable is discomfort right um there is no growth and there is you know the extension of that for me is you you never really get anything worthwhile without some discomfort. That doesn't mean that life is pain or that there's not joy, but I think that that's an inherent part of the process and that the discomfort and the joy are sort of the yin and the yang of the same thing, right? It's it's We want to experience the happiness but not the pain sometimes, and it's just that's just not the way it works. <laughs> it's just not the way it works. Um, I think, you know, for my mom and then, you know, when you get to that point where um you know you can't do the things that you used to be able to do where you're relying on people to help you with basic things you know there's really two two ways that can go right you either kind of fall into like anger or despair or depression some some flavor of that or you do you know what my mom did which is basically say I'm going to let go of this. I'm going to give give it over. I don't have control. I never actually had control, right? None of us really have control, but, but we have the illusion of control. And I think what the MS did um, for her is it forced her in a lot of ways. She literally had to give up control. And so I think she gave up control in terms of um, fear and um, in terms of you know, worrying what people thought you know I think she mm-hmm. like for example I used to oh he's like there's so many stories she used to for a while until she she um, kind of lost the use of of her uh, her left arm she used to have a modified van that she would drive with hand controls mm-hmm. um, but you know it's a huge process for her to swing the chair around transfer over to a wheelchair get out of the van go pump her gas and then do the whole thing over again and she would do it but sometimes if she was just so utterly exhausted which is a big hallmark of MS she would almost physically not she knew sort of I have I didn't need to do this once and I need to do it to get out of the van into my house so she would pull up to the gas station and just lay on the horn until somebody came out and of course inevitably that person was like uh angry and upset and like "Lady, you're crazy what are you doing and she would just smile at them and say you know I'm really sorry I just need help can you help me pump my gas and she just had this way of being in the world where people couldn't stay mad at her, you know, because I think she really did like embrace and a true like a real human level um, that wonder and that sense of, you know, love for people. And she was really comfortable in her own skin and that all mm-hmm. kind of came through. So, you know, she I think she took things that would be scary and, and, and sort of by letting go of that control and just saying, eh, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, this mm-hmm. guy can come over mm-hmm. and he can yell at me. He cannot pump my gas. Well, I'll go to the next gas station. I'll find somebody who will do it. I think, um, you know, for me, as you also know, the closest that I've come to being able to really understand and embrace that is, is that I went through cancer. And I think the same thing, you know, it's all the things, all the, and I went through cancer actually, probably I found out I was sick five months after my mom died very Mm. suddenly. And both of those things together, you know, all the things that you think are so important, you know, how much you weigh, you know, how do I look in this dress? Did so-and-so text me back? You know, what am I going to say in this meeting next week? Literally overnight, none of that stuff matters anymore. None of it matters. And there's just a way in which the the you know, and that goes back to the whole the yin and the yang, right? Obviously that was a really painful and hard and brutal time in a lot of ways. But it was also such an amazing time in my life. I've never had such clarity of purpose in terms of just, you know, as you were saying, you know, our ability is or our, our purpose here is to be here, is to love our people, is to show up and be present. And you know, to try and take something away from that, that, that helps you to grow. And I think um that really was sort of the end, beginning and end of the list for me mm-hmm. when I was sick of what was important. And I, you know, I always say that, uh well, there's an, uh, there's an author that I really love, a blogger and a activist author named Glennon Doyle, and she has a great term, where she says, life is brutal because it's brutal and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true all the time, but it was that, that year really, really brought that into sharp relief for me. I always say that, um, that was by far the hardest year of my life. I've never cried so much. I've never been in so much pain, both physically and emotionally, but I've also never felt so loved in my entire life. Like my people showed up for me in ways that like, I can't, I still can't fully talk about cause it chokes me up. And You know, it really helped shape me. I think it's really changed who I am as a person. It's really, even now that I am, you know, healthy and I'm back into a pretty demanding job and it is easy to lose sight of that sometimes. And I do lose sight of it sometimes. I think what it's done for me is it's just made it really crystal clear what my priorities are when the rubber meets the road. My Mm -hmm. priority above anything else is my family, is spending time with my family um, you know, being there to support my husband, being, showing up for my sister, showing up for my niece and nephew, for my dad and stepmom, you know, showing up for my friends, you know, even if, even if it means coming home from a business trip and turning around 24 hours later, flying to Vegas to be there for my friend's 40th birthday, Mm -hmm. you know, those are the things that matter. And it just, I really am grateful to my mom and I'm grateful to, to cancer because I think without that, you know, I, I wouldn't. I think I'd struggle a lot more with that minutia of the stuff that doesn't matter. <laughs> the stuff that just doesn't really matter yeah. at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. That makes me think about choice a lot just because I think that when we think about control, when we think about giving up control, um, the thing we get to hold onto and to seize is choice that we're choosing. We choose to give up control and to, and to set set the, the need to control a thing aside. And we also choose to be present or to engage in the way we engage in the world. Um, it's kind of pat, but it is also true that by not choosing, we are also making a choice. Um, that we have moments where we where we don't choose. I've been thinking a lot about the choice of evolving, right? That that the first step in that process is choosing to say, okay, cool, I'm going to do this. Um, this is a part of how I'm how I'm going to engage in the world, and then the second step is. To say, okay, I'm going to do this. This is part of how I'm going to engage in the world. And sometimes, sometimes the world gives you a whole lot of opportunity to express that choice in a way that's like really meaningful and driving and eventful and and earth shaking for you. And all of the other times, it is not. It's still the choice you make. You still you're still making this choice to be present to be true to yourself, to to follow through on your ideals and the things that you value. And I I don't know, somehow, and I think you you touched on this a little bit, somehow when the stakes are lower, the choice is harder.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. First of all, I think a few things. Number one, I don't think we ever choose to give up control.
0: Hmm.
1: I don't think we have control. I think we either... Continue to live with the illusion that we have control and then I think suffer the consequences (laughs) when we're disabused of that notion, usually on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Or you can start with the premise that you don't have control, you know, big picture. You have control over how you react in any given moment. And I, you know, to your point about being Pat, like my running joke again back to that year, um, 2010, you know, it was if I learned, I learned many things that year, but one of them I learned is cliches exist for a reason. (laughs) So, you know, this, you know, all the things you're saying, it's right. It's not, this is not new. We've heard this, right. That, you know, you should think about when you're on your deathbed, what are you going to regret? I mean, that is what, you know, I do. I think about that right now. I mean, I, my mom and I were very close, but I still, it's still, it's still literally physically painful for me to think about, you know, the time she called when I was too busy to talk or the vacation she wanted to take that I just couldn't make work because work was too busy. You mm-hmm. know, I, like I, it's, and so, you know, and, and I still have a job. I still, there are times where things are going on where work has to take precedence, but big picture, it's just really simplifying things to say, you know, what's important here and what am I going to care about in mm-hmm. 15 or 20 years? And so to your point about, you know, the stakes being lower, I think that's true, I I think that's true. Although, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I guess I I think that's true. I think, and, and that's not to say that, you know, I used to, the other thing is, you know, I, when I was sick, people would call and, you know, would be chatting and they'd have gotten a parking ticket or, you know, they got in a fight with their significant other or something happened, you know, their, their boss yelled at them. Um, and they would start to, you know, tell me what was going on. They would say, Oh, I don't want to bother you with this. You have cancer. And it's like, well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, first of all, I wouldn't wish that on you. (laughs) Like, it's not like we need to equalize the playing field. I wish I didn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what's going on for you right now. And it's real. So let's talk about it. It Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you don't get to have your experience or have your feelings. I think, I think you need to have those things. And I absolutely, um, my husband can tell you, you know, still with all of my wisdom and all of my hard won you know, insight will come home and have those days where something dumb got under my skin. I mean, mm. I'm, you know, we're all human. but I think it's really about keeping your perspective about what matters. Um, there's a poem I really love by Rainer Maria Rilke called "The Man watching. And it's um it's all about a storm coming and uh, trees kind of bending in the wind but not breaking. And there's a line in there that I just it's like my mantra. What we fight with is so small and what fights with us is so big. And so it's not to say that you're not going to fight with the small things. I think that is part of the human experience. Mm. I think that there's nothing wrong with that as long as you don't lose sight of the big things.
0: I think that I agree. I agree um, from the top down level on the aspect of control. I think when 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 I think about the idea of choice and control, I think more of the... Like the control we have over our our actions. Like yeah. I think the the illusion the illusion of control is that we have control outside of anything, over the outcome. Over, over the outcome. The, over the outcome. Exactly. Anything anything outside of the self. Right. Is you know once I, the, and I, I get into conversations with people about this around art. Um, once an artist makes a piece, the art is done, mm-hmm. and then it's it's we we the, we the experiencers do the work of perceiving the art of analyzing the art of thinking about what Mm -hmm. the art is but once it's done the artist is the artist has given us this thing and then and then it's it's in the world um and so they they which is convoluted and there are a whole lot more layers there than we need to go into
1: that makes sense i mean it's the same thing with children right that you think they think that children are a piece of you but really it's you you shape it you shape it you put Mm -hmm. your you absolutely you know parents are important obviously critically important in shaping the experience a child has, but that child is its own person and is mm-hmm. is gonna do its own thing in the world. Yeah, no, I think that makes total sense.
0: To a nod to your career, um, that's also true of organizations. That's true of um, that's true of anything that we do in the world is sort of a is putting what we hope is our best foot forward and putting our best selves into a thing, and then uh, and then trusting that in doing so it'll it'll go off and do whatever it does.
1: Yeah, I, it's interesting when when you talk about my career. So, well, so I started off for like a hot minute, basically for two years right out of college. I worked in politics. And then I decided that, you know, what I liked about that job was sort of being able to be part of important conversations about, Mm -hmm. you know, big issues that I thought were facing our country and facing us as humans. Um, But that that particular job and role wasn't wasn't doing it for me and so I um moved into media and I became Mm a you know documentary and tv producer and director and um right on the you know as I was really in some ways for me what I considered to be sort of the pinnacle of my career at that point or kind of a really a launching point I'd made um or worked on a produced an independent film that had had um a lot of success. We, mm-hmm. you know, won the Audience Award at the South by Southwest Film Festival. We were doing, you know, got a television deal. We were on Independent Lens. We got a great review in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And we had this big New York theatrical premiere, which is sort of like everyone's dream, right, when you're making an independent film, which is in and of itself a really pretty mm-hmm. <laughs> difficult and sometimes thankless process. But, um <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, I had this this thing happening and I thought, you know, this is really where my career is going to go to the next level. And, you know, f- three, four days before is when my sister called, maybe a week before is when my sister called and said, you know, mom's dead. And I immediately went home and literally the day of this big New York premiere was my mom's funeral. Mm-hmm. So... I, you know, like we talked about really immediately, everything that had been so important and nothing mm-hmm. mattered. Mm-hmm. Right? None, of, none of that mattered. All that mattered was being with my sister and and being with my family and, and dealing with my mom. My sister was five months pregnant with her first baby. So I really holed up for four months with her um, and then was getting ready to go back to New York and step back into my big filmmaker career. And then I found out I had cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, my life really did kind of a a 180 in a lot of ways, you know, I went from traveling all the time and constantly being on the go to if I was out for more, it was a little bit of trial and error, but I figured out that two hours was about my window. And Mm -hmm. if I was out even just for lunch with a friend while I was going through chemo for more than two hours, I would literally start crying Mm because I was so tired. I felt like a Mm three-year-old who had like missed her nap. (laughs) So I mean, my life just looked completely different. And on the heels of that, I got an opportunity sort of as I was finishing up chemo to go into this organization uh, for corporate directors and work with an old colleague of mine, helping her put together some events. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a while. And then she asked me to come on full time contract for about six months to to put together one event kind of on my own. And I did all that sort of, you know, with an eye towards I really want to do a good job here. This is interesting, but as soon as this is done, I'm going to go back to making movies. And she, in the middle of all that, left. And they were looking for someone to take her job. And honestly, I didn't even... um, I didn't even didn't even cross my mind that I would, might be that person. I first of all, I really still saw myself as a filmmaker, so sure. I thought, well, that's not necessarily a job I want. Right. And also, you know, I'm sure in the job description <laughs> did not look anything like my resume. I'm sure they weren't looking for someone that had produced three seasons of Shauna's Amazing Animals, or you know, I, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure about that. And you know, I remember coming home from work one day, and my husband was like, well, then then boyfriend now husband said um you know how was your day and I said it was really good this was this went really well and um you know I got a compliment on my work here and yeah it was good and he said well you better be ready with your number and I said what do you mean he goes when they call you and ask you to take that that director of education job you better know what that's worth to you and I said you are crazy Mm -hmm. that's not going to happen and uh this is not going to happen. And he said, oh, all right. I think you better be ready with your number. And sure enough, a week later, uh, this woman up in Boston who did some of their recruiting called. And I knew of her. I knew she existed in the world. But I had never spoken to her. And sh- she said, Hi, Aaron, this is Judy. And I wanted to talk to you about the director of education job. And I swear to God, the first words out of my mouth were, did Charlie put you up to this? <laughs> and she was amazing and professional and gracious. And she said, so So I don't know who Charlie is (laughs) but I really want to talk to you about this anyway so I took on this job I went from you know being basically this independent filmmaker to being in charge of putting together um and and overseeing content creation and design for um events for people that are on corporate boards Mm -hmm. and you know back to where we started the conversation I mean it was pretty intimidating you know I've been doing it a little bit but it Mm -hmm. wasn't It wasn't um, my background. I hadn't grown up in corporate America. I mean, there was a lot to be intimidated about. But I know because, you know, it's again, how I was raised, that when something scares you, it's probably a good indicator that you should do it. (laughs) Um, uh, Unless that something is like taking on a bear or running (laughs) into traffic. But like when it comes to work and love, let's let's say that. When it comes to work and love, if something scares you, it, it probably means that, that it's, it's calling to you. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, what's what's the worst I have to lose? I'm, I'll do this. I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll um, do my best. And if it works out great. And if it doesn't, I'll go back to being a filmmaker, which I love. And at least I can say I tried it and I took on the challenge and I won't have regrets. And I think one of the things, so I've been there for almost seven years now, which is crazy <laughs> to me. Um, the organization has grown by leaps and bounds. And um, and our what we've been able to do with the program has been amazing. We've um, tripled the amount of events that we put on. We've quadrupled the revenue that we make from those events. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, by all accounts, we're really reaching people with what we're doing there. And I think, honestly, what has helped me be successful is I wasn't afraid to fail mm-hmm. because I didn't have my ego tied to the outcome. Right. I was much more afraid to fail as a as a filmmaker I was really afraid to fail I was really afraid in terms of like oh well is this a good idea for film well what if it's done what if it ends up not being good what if no one likes it what if it's what if what if I didn't ever really ask myself that here I think I've just I've really just trusted my gut and and just forged ahead and I think because my ego wasn't tied to the outcome surprise surprise <laughs> the outcome has been you know by all accounts sort of a total home run mm-hmm. and that's you know I still have that fear like I have this book that I've been talking about writing for forever uh-huh. and I'm I'm really afraid I think sometimes to and I need to get over this fear I'm working on this now but I'm you know because I'm because I, I am so tied to that. I do want it to be good. It's you know it's a a book about my relationship with my mom which is obviously very personal and uh-huh. the stakes feel very high but there's a real lesson for me in what's happened with this job about letting go of your ego and letting go of that fear of failure as a way to actually succeed (laughs) and to be (laughs) successful.
0: As you talk about it, it makes perfect sense that they would bring you on as the director of education, because what better tools to hand off and, and to give to people who are directing organizations or really anyone. um, But, but especially when you're talking about people learning how to do big things Mm -hmm. um, that involve a lot of egos and a lot of, and and a lot of weight and, um, and a lot of potential for, social shaming, both around failure and around feeling exposed, and even just talking about fear as a tool to lessen it and mitigate it and, and sort of say, okay, cool, this is a thing that I'm concerned about, both on a personal level and on a professional level. Mm-hmm. do you have tools that might be able to help, <laughs> help deal with this? Or if, if I'm coming into this saying, this is a thing that I'm afraid of, yeah. do you feel like it's a part of the process that you can, like being able to, even at that level, hand that off yeah. is so immensely valuable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, so I didn't really fully appreciate the skills that I had as a producer and how transferable they were right like when you think of hard skills in media you think of things like editing and shooting and sound design and you know it's don't get me wrong I've, I've ended up being on the cleanup crew of a lot of projects where they didn't think a producer was necessary so it's. <laughs> I knew that I had experience as a producer and that mm-hmm. I brought a lot to the table but until I took this job I didn't think about things like being able to connect the dots between different ideas and find the common thread. Um, You know, another thing that I always say about, you know, what makes a really good documentary film is it can take a topic that you either thought you already understood or that you – and you've made up your mind about or that you knew nothing about or that you don't really want to know anything about because you don't think that's for you. And to find the common human elements in that story that connect with an audience where they walk out going, man – that changed me. It changed the way I think a little bit. It just, it touched me. And I, I really believe, you know, um, there's another great quote. I'm full of great quotes. <laughs> I read a lot of poetry. Um, there's a great quote, and I can't remember the woman's name who said it, but she said, you know, I, I believe there's someone you, there's I believe there's no one you can't love at least a little once you've heard their story. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that story really is a powerful way for us to connect because what story does is sort of distill down any life experience into some common human elements, right? We all want to be seen. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to love and be loved. We Mm want to, and you know, those things can be, seem like soft, fuzzy concepts when you're talking about something like a corporate boardroom. But I think the essence of what those things are is absolutely universal. And so what I've realized without really realizing it until I started doing this job that I bring to the table is being able to pull out those common elements and apply them to some of the the issues around the boardroom and what it means to be a business leader. So, you know, we talk about what I what I say are sort of table stakes board issues. So things mm-hmm. like how regulatory changes are impacting business and what the board needs to understand about that, you know, how you compensate your your senior team and your CEO. There, you know, those kind of table stakes issues. But then there are issues around just leadership and diversity and all these other things where you know, the way in is not that, (laughs) is not very dissimilar to the, you know, the way in when I was a filmmaker. To me, you know, I can take, and to me, it's all about understanding your audience, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you can give me pretty much any issue. And if you put it through a filter of either strategy or risk, that's how you talk about it with a, with a business audience when Mm -hmm. they're wearing their business hats, right? You know, how does this, if I don't understand this topic, pose a potential risk to my business, or how could, if I understood this topic, it help our business in terms of strategy? Well, that allows you to talk about all kinds of things from unconscious bias to immigration reform to the environment. I mean, things Mm -hmm. that we maybe thought of before as quote-unquote soft issues, they're absolutely not. And so, and, you know, we all bring our whole selves, right? So they also care about it as, you know, citizens and community members and parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think being able to lead with that business lens, um, Really helps, and so it's really just about connecting the dots. It's about who's my audience and what's the way in here. Doesn't mean it's where you have to necessarily end up, but where's the way in? And you know, they've taught me a lot too. Like my other running joke, although it's absolutely true, is it's challenged a lot of my stereotypes. Right? Like my mom was a labor organizer. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a media professional who worked for labor unions my whole life, the UAW and then the machinists. And um, you know, I. My sister and I basically grew up on a picket line. We were either picketing <laughs> or we were protesting <laughs> something or we were at a rally like mm-hmm. every other weekend. And social activism and social justice were just a huge part of, and still are, but definitely a huge part of my childhood. So for me, you know, this seems like the most unlikely place for me to be. And um, when I started, you know, if you would asked me to describe the chairman of the board, I would have I described the little dude from Monopoly, right? The short... Mm-hmm white, fat, bald dude with a bag of money and a cigar. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of my own stereotypes. And those stereotypes have been absolutely not just challenged, but kind of exploded. And I think my, what this job has done for me, um, and I don't just see it as a job, I really do see it as as a calling and really mission driven. Because, you know, I got into filmmaking because I wanted to be part of important conversations and helping to, to influence important conversations. Well, you know, when you look at the business leaders um, in our country, they influence almost everything about our lives. Yeah. And so to be able to be in conversation about, well, what does it really mean to create value? And mm-hmm. how do you think mm-hmm. about that beyond just next quarter's earnings? And why right. is that important? And hey, guess what? They want to have that conversation. Right. Um, you know, I we brought in a guy, Raj Sasodia, who founded the Conscious Capitalism Institute. And the first time I brought him in, it was a little bit like, Oh, I don't know. This is a little outside the box, and and you know he's great because he knows he also knows his audience. He comes in and he starts off by with this love letter to capitalism and talking about how capitalism is this great system and it's raised tens of thousands of people out of poverty over years across the globe, which is all true. But then he talks about it because it's such a powerful and important system that we need to protect it. And when we don't hold business accountable, when we let bad behavior um, go unchecked, mm-hmm. that it damages the system. And he. Ended his talk saying, what I'm talking to you about are businesses built on love, which is a pretty radical statement. (laughs) You're talking to a room full of Fortune 500 directors and he got a standing ovation Mm -hmm. and I started crying. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so I think it's, it's not just about... It's, it's your, back to your point about constantly evolving and growing. You don't have to do that. You have to make a conscious decision that you want to do that. But you really are robbing yourself of so much richness and joy when you don't make that decision. Um, I had a best friend growing up who I'm still good friends with. And you know my mom really raised us with a sense of adventure and a love for travel. And I've traveled, studied abroad. Um, when I was in high school, I went to Spain. And she said, I just don't understand why you would want to travel and it's scary and just, you know, everything's great here. Why would you want to go anywhere? And I I don't even remember saying this to her, but she told me years later that it really made an impact on her and she still remembers it. I said to her, not traveling is like living in a big house and only ever and not ever leaving the living room. (laughs) <laughs> you yeah, can do that absolutely. why would you do that
0: yeah. <laughs> so you, you can totally do that
1: right but. right and so i just uh, yeah i mean I've, you know evolving it's you know it's only scary because it's unknown mm-hmm. but and there are a lot of things that we don't yet know about that are going to be painful and scary that are sure. going to happen to us sure. and there are a lot of things that are unknown that are going to be mind-blowingly beautiful and explode your heart and just make you realize a capacity for joy and love that you didn't even know you had before. And so, you know, yeah, you are rolling the dice, right? But the bottom line is those scary things are going to happen to you one way or the other, you know, some flavor, maybe it'll be a different flavor, but you're still going to be scared. So why wouldn't you make the choice that also opens the door to that, that possibility for, for expansion and joy and love and and belonging. I mean, it just doesn't make any, it seems like a, it doesn't make sense to me. It seems like a losing proposition. (laughs) (laughs) And,
0: and I also feel like the, so when I, when I really, when I started down the path of trying to actively engage with what I was already doing as a, as a conscious human being, um, I, I had a moment, uh, I had a moment. I was sitting on the Folks who follow the show know that I've talked with uh, with Bonnie King Taylor. I was sitting on Bonnie's couch and we were working on something and I had an aha moment where I realized...
1: Bonnie's good at the aha moments. Bonnie is really good <laughs> at the aha
0: moments. I had an aha moment where I realized that in having opened the door and acknowledged that the door was there, I had already... Having looked at it, I had made the choice that I was gonna walk through. Like that I didn't that opening the door at all and acknowledging that it wasn't a thing meant I had to. And not because not because I was compelled by something else, but because like there was no you can't stand still. You have to go forward, and that is forward. And I think that what's really amazing and empowering about what you do, both in both in your life as a filmmaker and in your work with uh, NACD, is that you give a lot of people an opportunity to acknowledge the doors. <laughs> like it's like, hey, maybe one of these. And in and, yeah. and because and once you see it, you might not be able to implement it immediately. You might not be able to act on it that moment, but you yeah. you've seen it. No,
1: I like that I never thought about it that way but I do really like that idea of being able to acknowledge the door and you just you know I was sort of struggling for the words earlier but I think the other thing about starting with you know just like Raj Lasodia started with let's talk about why capitalism is great right he didn't start with I'm talking about businesses built on love because they weren't ready for it yet right exactly when I start with the well let's look at what the risk and strategy implications are of this thing it gives them okay. We're talking about business and like mm-hmm. and how I'm going to think about this. Is, it gives them permission to. It, it's it's the door. That's exactly what you're describing. That is the door, and then you walk through it, and there's all these other things, right, that are in the room that you didn't know were there, you didn't notice before. But I, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, we I've done a couple of different things now. We talk a lot about boardroom diversity and diversity in the C-suite and. You know, one of the ways that I've come at it is by looking at unconscious bias and how it plays out in other areas. So we had um, the folks that helped write the Rooney Rule for the NFL on to talk about their work. Um, last year we had um, Dr. Philip Goff, who um, runs the Center for Policing Equity, and he goes in and does unconscious bias work with police um, jurisdictions who invite him in to help them, you know, with issues around unconscious bias, police violence, relating better to the community. And, you know, I think a lot of these guys probably didn't think three or four years ago they'd be coming to a corporate governance conference and hearing from the guy who started the Center for Policing Equity. But because we're framing it in, let's talk about, you know, big picture, how diversity can, how unconscious bias influences the conversation. They're you know they're open in a different way, and it just sparks a whole different conversation and a whole different way of thinking um, that absolutely goes back to how they think about diversity at, at, around the board table. But it's bigger than that too.
0: There's a school of thought. There's a school of thought around uh, conflict mediation that uh, says no matter how crazy the first thing a person says in a conversation with you is, respond with yes. The first thing you the first thing you do is acknowledge not necessarily that what they're saying is true, but that their experience of that thing, that belief, what they're and the fact that they're engaging with you is valid. Mm-hmm. Like that they are having that experience and then move forward. And going back a little bit, going back to the way we talk to ourselves because mm-hmm. I think like the the cool thing about all of this is that it applies to our conversations with other people as much as it does to our conversations with ourselves, is that a thing we can learn to do as well is to start with yes with us. Like when, when it comes, like so often we want to jump straight to the solution of a thing without mm-hmm. thinking about, without meeting ourselves on the level we're currently at. And I think we were talking a little bit earlier about like if you're having a really bad day mm-hmm. and you're like, I should go to the gym. And then your next thought is, I lack the emotional strength to go to the gym right now. The subsequent thought very often is that makes me a bad person because I should go to the gym when it's totally, it's totally an option to say, cool, you're emotionally exhausted. What are tools we can use to help that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because like sometimes I know for me, I'll find going to the gym would be very helpful in terms of my emotional state. But if you don't get there, you at least are acknowledging that that's the place you're at and like working towards something positive and that you can do do that for other people and for yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the other big great tools my mom gave me is, you know, when you're in that space to just be quiet, just stop and be quiet with yourself and just take a deep breath and check in And picture it, like picture yourself at the gym, right? Mm -hmm. Like, does that feel like the right thing? And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. And trusting yourself enough to go with that and understanding that whatever choice you make, if it's coming from that place of really checking in with yourself, that is Mm -hmm. Mm self-care. Going to the gym is self-care and deciding... I'm going to go to bed as self-care and mm-hmm. deciding I'm just going to go take a bubble bath. Screw it. I'll go tomorrow as self-care. <laughs> it just, it, you know, but it, what you're doing there is, you know, right? You can't control, you can control how you react to those feelings, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And, I, you know, one of the other things I always say too, um, and I try to do this with myself, but, you know, when my friends are having a hard time or beating up on themselves, I'll always say, Be nice to my friend. Don't talk to my friend like that. And it's just reminding (laughs) ourselves and each other that, you know, we do we it's again, it is a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. It's so true. We, we talk to ourselves in ways we would never talk to somebody that we love and respect and care about. Um, And I think, yeah, I think that. We, we you know it's this phrase i use i was telling you I saw this good talk is all about we don't we don't really we really aren't great in this culture about practicing good emotional hygiene, mm-hmm. and I think um I think that that's so critical, you know um one of the things that actually Bonnie has told me as well, and uh, you know it's again not stuff we don't know, but if you don't remember that you have the tools and you can't use them, then they're sort of use it's useless <laughs> that you happen to know that they exist in the world yeah. right you know that it, it's true I mean. 95% of the time when, when I'm having a really hard time or I'm spiraling or I'm feeling really bad it, you know it's did I have enough water to drink you know did I you know have I have I fed my body like in a healthy way mm-hmm. um, and did I get enough sleep and have I you know exercised like they're, they're actually pretty physical things and I think we also it goes back to the whole connection between the physical and the emotional and there are turns out a lot of if you don't let yourself get sucked into that spiral, if you take that step back, there's actually a whole bunch of tools you have at your disposal to mm-hmm. to uh, make yourself feel better. Yeah, yeah, you got to drink more water.
0: Bro. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> That's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Aaron at applyingtoeverything.xyz guests. You can find out more about the show at applyingtoeverything.xyz. We're on iTunes and Google Play, where you can subscribe to, rate, and review the show. Thanks to Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount Saint Misery, off of The Great Resolve, available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. I'd also like to thank Chiara Scarcella for designing our logo. Tune in next time for my conversation with Roxana Haddadi to talk about Mark Hamill's Brooding Game. To Porg or Not to Porg, and Star Wars The Last Jedi. Talk to you then.